0: Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data, the human side of data analytics. Hey everyone and welcome to Who's Your Data. Femtech, or female health technology, which includes apps such as period trackers, is experiencing unprecedented growth. But nowhere is this podcast tagline, how life affects data and how data affects life, more relevant than in this industry in the shadow of the Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade this year. In this episode, I talked to Bethany Corbin, a femtech innovation and data privacy attorney about the femtech industry and its challenges in a post-Roe v. Wade world. What kind of data do these apps collect? What are the unique data privacy concerns and how these were affected by Dobbs? and those calls to delete period tracking apps and other reactions to DOBs. Bethany discusses some actual cases of data privacy violations and gives tips on how to vet such apps to make sure that they're compliant with stringent privacy standards. We also touch on data aggregation and utilizing AI in the space. I hope you enjoy this fascinating and timely conversation. Let's get to the interview. Bethany, welcome to Who's Your Data podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: So I want to talk to you about you know, female health technology, or what is known as femtech, it's an industry that's experiencing unprecedented international growth. Uh, I think currently, it's comprising of more than 1800 companies across 10 different subsectors. And it's anticipated to be worth more than $97 billion by 2030. And you are an expert in these apps. And so I wanted first of all, to start at ask you, What is femtech? What are these apps doing? What kind of data do they collect?
1: Yeah, of course. So femtech is short for female health technology. What that really means is we're looking for digital health solutions focused on tackling women's health issues. And so femtech itself was coined in 2016. It's a relatively new industry. And what we've started to see is growth in the recognition that women's health is different from men's health and that it deserves personalized solutions. So a lot of companies that are coming into the femtech market are doing so for several reasons. One of the first is to empower women, right? This is the first time that we're having an industry dedicated exclusively to women's health, and we're able to empower women to really understand their bodies. The other reason that we see more companies coming into this space now is to promote female bodily autonomy and to try to change some of the underlying stigmas and taboos about women's health care. So for so long, a lot of conversations about women's health have been relegated to the private spheres of the home, right, it's not something you're talking about out in public or at school with your friends. And so that dialogue has started to change, especially whenever we think about, you know, Gen Z and what they're doing and the conversations they're having. And it's becoming a much more open space. And that's really critical because what we need to have happen is to break down those stigmas and taboos so that women can feel comfortable discussing their experiences, even with their healthcare providers. So that's what Femtech is really designed to do. Now, whenever we think about the femtech industry, as you mentioned, there's a couple of different subsectors. I will say that the subsector that's had the absolute most growth since the conception of femtech really is that kind of menstrual cycle reproductive healthcare segment that has boomed. That's where a lot of the innovation is right now. The great thing, though, is that we're starting to move away and expand into other areas of women's health. So we've started to see in the last year a significant boom in innovation for things like menopause and longevity care. The other things we're starting to see, you know, not as much, but we are seeing some developments are in uterine health and breast health. Um, Also focusing on cancer. There are some really innovative technologies out there that are now trying to see if you can use, for instance, like a smart tampon to detect cervical cancer or a blood test to detect ovarian cancer. That's what I'm really excited to see going forward are kind of those um, more chronic healthcare conditions being tackled by FemTech. And when we think about the types of data, and the types of apps and devices that we're seeing, there's a broad range. Um, the most common that most people have probably heard about, right, are those period tracking, ovulation tracking, fertility tracking apps. Um, that's what a lot of people think about when they see FemTech. The other types of devices we have, we have, you know, actual FDA devices that are coming through to improve women's health care. Uh, we have telehealth platforms that are being built to tackle women's health issues or provide personalized care for women's health. Um, so those are some of the main ones as well. The types of data that these Femtech apps and devices are collecting, it's going to depend really on the purpose of the app and what they're trying to do. As I mentioned, kind of that the main subsector of Femtech right now is really looking at kind of apps that can provide algorithmic predictions for your healthcare. So, those types of products and apps are going to be collecting data like demographic and user information, right? Like your contact info, your name, your gender, your address, your phone number. Uh, They'll collect health information that might be your height, your weight, um, medical images, your symptoms, your diagnoses. Depending on the app and what it's doing, it could collect your insurance information or your payment information and billing information. Support data is another common category of data that's being collected. So this might be things like um, your IP address, right, or other types of data that could be used for troubleshooting or customer support. And then you have just kind of that technology data as well. That might be your mobile carrier, right? Your internet service provider, your browser type, date and file stamps that are associated with your usage. Um, so we have a broad range, but those are the most common.
0: One of the biggest concerns in general with data around apps and, and usage of the internet and, and specifically with healthcare, and I would say specifically even more with women's healthcare apps is uh, the issue of data privacy. And so I want to dive right into that. What are the key data privacy concerns or challenges that are associated with the femtech industry and women's health? And are they unique from other health tech?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So there are certain data privacy concerns for femtech that are unique. And then there's some that we see that kind of flow throughout health Tech in general. The ones that we see that kind of flow throughout health tech in general are going to be your things like making sure that the privacy policy is accurate, right? Making sure that the companies are being truthful and how they're disclosing and using your information and just general data privacy concerns with kind of aggregating data, selling data downstream. That's pretty common amongst all types of healthcare applications that we see. When we think about femtech, even though we have those similar Features, Right. In the similar ways data could be used and, you know, privacy breaches. It's different in women's health. And it's especially different since we had the overturn of Roe versus Wade. So I will say before the Dobbs decision, these things were happening. Um, data was being used, collected, sold downstream. Right. There were there were ways for your data to get out. But consumers weren't really paying attention to it, right? We had a lot of innovation in digital health, especially with the COVID-19 pandemic. And so there was this movement, right, to use these digital health solutions and kind of a free exchange, honestly, of your health data to get an algorithmic prediction, right, or whatever the end product was. When we had the overturn of Roe versus Wade, that really thrust into the spotlight health issues um, and privacy issues with women's health care. And what became different is that now without federal protection of abortion, women's health data could be used in order to potentially prosecute her right, or her physician if she had an abortion that was illegal. So because of that, Um, Last year, you probably saw a bunch of articles flooding the internet on, you know, should you delete your period tracking app, delete it now, right, your data is not safe. And so we saw kind of a mass hysteria there. That kind of signifies some unique data challenges here for femtech, because now... Unfortunately, right, a lot of consumers have lost trust in femtech in a way that they haven't with other health technology that's out there, even though they're they're all using the kind of the same similar data practices and data sharing practices, femtech has kind of had a decrease in consumer trust, because they're afraid that that's where law enforcement's going to go now to access their data. So I would say, you know, a lot of the same similar data concerns exist. In femtech, though, we're really, really worried about that data leaking out or being used to prosecute women. And that's pretty unique there.
0: That's a really good point that you bring up. And, and speaking of Dobbs, so like you said, there was a lot of fear and panic after the release of the Dobbs decision. And there were a lot of outlets that were that were advising women to delete period tracking apps. Was that advice sound? Have we seen any use of that data by law enforcement to prosecute women?
1: Yeah, so I I think the hysteria at that point in time was a bit overblown. Um, I'm not saying that there's not ways in which law enforcement can get access to that data because they absolutely can. But here's the thing. Law enforcement is not going to automatically start going to a period tracking app, right, or an ovulation tracking app and demanding data. They gotta have something that's giving them suspicion, right, and reasonable cause to think that you've had an illegal abortion. Well, where are they going to get that? That's most likely going to be things like your search history, right? What you're putting into Google. That's going to be your Facebook messages where you're having conversations about what you're doing. Um, And so I think whenever we had that mass hysteria over period tracking apps, we lost a significant portion of the conversation, which was there's low hanging fruit here that you're not considering and in fact that's where we're seeing law enforcement going right now so for instance previously um this was before the dobbs decision law enforcement used a woman's search history in google were searching you know for abortion medication how to do an abortion to prosecute her most recently there was a case in nebraska where a mother and daughter were communicating over facebook messages about you know kind of what to do with the fetus how to have a medication abortion And so those are going to be kind of your common routes that law enforcement is going to go to first. Now, if law enforcement finds a bunch of that data and that low-hanging fruit, then yes, right, they could theoretically go to your period tracking app or your ovulation app and ask for more data, right? And that's kind of a way that the data could get out there. But when we think about it, it's going to be much more things like your text messages, right, or those big tech giants, that's going to be where law enforcement is going to go first, because that's a what they're used to, the government is very used to requesting this type of data from tech companies. I think from 2013 to 2020, there was um, a study that showed that user data from tech companies was actually like the fifth most requested, like fifth request per 100,000 people, um, and then kind of first and overall requests. So that's really where they're going to go first. Um, again, not to say that they wouldn't then subsequently go to you know Flow or Glow or Avi or whatever app you're using, but by then, right, it's not going to be their primary data. They're going to be looking for things to supplement.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I do. I do know that for for us on the ad tech side, you know, a, a key component is of the type of data that we use is location data, and mm-hmm. so being able to track devices that are in you know near or going to abortion clinics. And hospitals. So there's been a lot of work around that to just not create audiences and not uh, utilize that location data so that there isn't any kind of nefarious use of that kind of data.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And we're seeing that in the femtech abortion context as well. And that's, you know, kind of goes back to what we're talking about about one of the key privacy concerns in femtech. Data aggregation and data brokers is huge. That's a huge risk for women. Um, There was a study, uh, it wasn't actually a study, sorry. sorry. There was a, Vice, what Vice actually did was they bought data from a data broker mm-hmm. and they got it for like a hundred bucks, right? 120 bucks. And in that data, and, and anybody can go and buy data from a data broker. Um, In that data, what it showed was women who had visited abortion clinics, right? Where they came from, where they went after. And so even though it was aggregated data, you could use that data to pinpoint, right? This woman went here, went here. Oh yeah, I can backtrack that and identify her. Um, So that's also one of the huge concerns we're seeing here with data aggregation, data brokers. I know that Google also said it was going to, you know, turn off kind of those location features when women were at abortion clinics. But there have been, you know, some studies showing that women are still being tracked there. So it's definitely an issue in Femtech.
0: Yeah. And even though it's aggregated. And even though, you know, Google is is anticipated to turn off the, the tracking of the third-party cookies, there's still studies that show that you can sort of triangulate and backtrack. And they're not as anonymous as we would hope they are. Even without third-party cookies, you yeah. can eventually, by triangulating different pieces of data, you can kind of de-anonymize it a little bit. Now, you mentioned Flow, and I read that following the Dobbs decision, Flow, which is uh, a menstruation app, uh, introduced an anonymous mode for its app. Uh, Does that really protect consumer data? Is that the way to go with with these things?
1: Yeah, it's another great question, right? I think that when we hear the term anonymous, we get a false sense of security as consumers, right? Because we think, great, I'm going to be protected at every single level. Nobody will ever be able to backtrack that and re-identify me. That's not the case, right? Um, the term anonymous or, you know, anonymization, that's not really a technically meaningful word, right? If it, There's nothing that says here are all of the things that have to be de-identified um, in order for something to be anonymous. And so each company has the opportunity to kind of define anonymous however they want to define it and however they want that to mean. And you as a consumer really don't know and you you don't have kind of that background and insight into their tech to understand if anonymous is going to protect you. So for instance, a company could say that their app is anonymous because they remove or they don't collect your name or your address or your email. But what if they're still collecting your IP address, right? Or your mobile advertising IDs, right? Or other things that they can use to tie your login information back to you that is still gonna allow somebody to be able to re-identify you. So I'm always cautious when I hear something being advertised as anonymous, because to me, I'm still gonna treat that app as if my data is going to be re-identified to me. I think that's the
0: safest way to go. I agree, that definitely is uh, the safest way to go. And personal information in the industry is called PII, or personally identifiable information. And there's some debate of what that encompasses. So certainly things like your name, your address, your email are considered PII. But in some areas, IP addresses are considered PII. And in some industries, IP addresses are not considered PII. And that's certainly something that you can use to triangulate and really break down and and really get very granular and, and looking for de, or de-anonymizing. So that's a very good point that you don't really know what anonymous means in the industry. It means different things to different people. So in general, how would you say that the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision changed the data privacy landscape for women's health?
1: Yeah, I think it had a huge impact on the data privacy landscape for women's health because as I mentioned before, right, women weren't really thinking about this, right? They were really honestly, to be be frank, willing to exchange some of their most sensitive and intimate health data for these algorithmic predictions and these different types of products. Since that Dobbs decision came out, that women have been much more attuned to what their apps are doing. And because of that, we've seen a shift in how femtech companies and founders are having to respond in order to keep their apps and their products competitive. And that's something we hadn't really seen before. Um, It's something we're starting to see trickle down into other areas of health tech. Um, Mental health is the other area that's kind of gotten some backlash over the same time period about data sharing practices, but really that you know, insight and attention is being concentrated on femtech right now. We've seen companies, as we just talked about, right, flow changing and having an anonymous mode. Uh, We've seen other companies coming out and telling consumers, here's what they're doing to protect privacy, right? Here's how they will or they won't share data with law enforcement officers. Um, But mostly, right, there's a generalized fear, there's generalized panic. And I've started to see a loss of trust in femtech, uh, which I cannot blame women for that. you You have to be comfortable with the technology that you're using. And so I think what we also see since the Dobbs decision is an industry that either has to step up or it's going to lose its consumer base. And it's for an industry that I think has a lot of potential in the future to really revolutionize women's healthcare, especially as we're expanding into those more chronic care conditions. So we risk losing all of that innovation and development if we don't shore up our privacy practices um, and our data privacy and security frameworks. And so that to me is you know kind of a big call for help that we've had since the Dobbs decision um, and something that a lot of femtech founders are stepping up to the plate and doing. We've also seen privacy now being used as a differentiator. And that was something that we didn't really see you know prior to the Dobbs decision. But now companies, especially in femtech, are able to say, hey, here are all the great privacy you know, enhancing technologies that we're using. Here's how we're being transparent about our data privacy practices. And that is drawing more and more consumers to those specific types of products. Um, so that's actually become a differentiator lately.
0: How can consumers vet these products based on privacy?
1: Yeah, that is one of the most frustrating things as a consumer, right? Is that you don't have a ton of information to be able to vet these products based on their privacy or their security. Um, Even as an attorney, right? You've, I have to dig through their privacy policies. I've got to dig through their websites, do back-end research, you know, look at studies that are being done. It's not something that is, you know, as simple as kind of comparing a product, right? You click the products and you hit the compare button and it tells you. Um, I wish that we had that. I know that there are some companies out there that are trying to work to kind of create those easy resources for consumers. Um, We don't have, obviously, a a fully comprehensive resource yet, but we're hopefully going to get there. Um, So as a consumer, right, what are you to do? It can be difficult because a lot of times companies are hiding what they're doing. You know, so even if you scour their privacy policy, there's always the chance that they might use your data illegally. Um, And I'm I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit uh, because it is happening. So as a consumer, you know, kind of the best piece of advice I can give you is, Look at the studies that are out there. There have been some studies, um, especially by Surfshark, that has kind of compared some of the apps based on data hungriness and their privacy policies and privacy practices. So look at those studies. Um, it's got kind of the top you know apps in each category. It even goes beyond Femtech in a couple of the studies and kind of ranks them. So, so take a look at that. Make sure that you're comfortable with the data that the app is asking you to collect. And something I always think about whenever I start with an app is, why do they need XYZ data? You know, if I want, you know, if I'm working with a period tracking app, right, and the goal is to be able to predict my next cycle, why do you need my phone number, right? Why do you need these certain other identifiers about me that aren't going to change the algorithmic output that I get? Um, So if I see that, right, I might try a different application that's going to collect less data about me or adhere to the, you know, minimum necessary data principle. The other thing that I do is I do look at the privacy policy. I as a lawyer, you know, I do not all, right? I, I, you know, it's very difficult. I think there's a study that shows if you read every privacy policy that you ever had to agree to, it would take like seven years off your life. So I don't read all of them. I know as consumers, you're not gonna read all of them, but scroll through and look at the data use and disclosure section. Because that's where you're going to see if they're kind of aggregating your data and selling it downstream to data brokers. And here's why that's a problem. Once your data gets into the hands of other third parties, whether it's a data broker, right, or an advertising agency or social media like Facebook, that means you have no control over where it goes from there. So once that data is out, it is out. And so I look for apps that minimize the downstream disclosure of my data to those third parties. And so that's really where you're going to find that use and
0: disclosure section helpful. It's a really interesting point because we've gotten so used to sharing all this information with any app, our phone number, our email, demographics, our age, this and that. And um, we don't even think about it. And usually, OK, this is how they communicate with us. They'll send us a verification code, blah, blah, blah. And uh, that's true. Is that really necessary? for these apps, because it's so sensitive. You mentioned, you know, we've we we we've been talking about sort of, uh, you know, unethical data sharing. You had mentioned to me that several femtech companies have gotten in trouble with the FTC and state attorneys for improper data sharing. Can you tell us more about Regulation around Femtech apps and why these companies got in trouble?
1: Absolutely. So there's a couple of different ways Femtech is regulated. Um, You have regulation kind of on the data privacy perspective, and then you also have regulation on kind of the accuracy perspective. Um, So I'll start, I'll start first with kind of the accuracy perspective. Femtech apps are regulated, you know, just kind of as medical devices, like other apps that you use or other medical products that you use. Um, for that reason, you know, sometimes they are going to be subject to the Food and Drug Administration's oversight. The FDA, though, has created an exception process for some of these devices that are, you know, kind of software as a medical device. They're providing very limited, you know, diagnostic support uh, for the consumers. Um, There don't pose a risk to consumers, right? It might be things like you're tracking your food intake one day, right? Or you're monitoring your cycle, that type of an app. That's typically going to be subject to FDA enforcement discretion. What that means is the app is not going to have to do things like prove that it is safe and effective or even prove that it's accurate or undergo clinical trials. Because of that, we do kind of have this regulatory gap for femtech where a lot of these products can kind of race to market and they can do so in a way without proving that they're accurate. And that is why Femtech actually does have a little bit of an accuracy problem uh, for some of the devices that are out there. And I see this most commonly with the free applications that are out there. And I also see it most commonly in the Femtech apps that have absolutely no clinical oversight or no affiliation with any type of medical clinician. There's nothing to say, right, that you or I couldn't just go out and become a tech founder and create our own period tracking app and not have any type of clinician oversight, right, not really know what we're doing. We could still put that on the market. And there have been studies that have looked at period tracking apps specifically and found them to be inaccurate. One of them, there's the Organization for the Review of Care and Health apps, and it found that 85% of the apps that it studied did not meet their threshold for quality and that they had significant clinical assurance concerns. There was a 2016 study by researchers at Columbia University Medical Center, and that similarly found that 95% of the 108 free smartphone menstrual cycle apps that it studied were inaccurate um, and that they had almost no scientific grounding or any type of consultation with medical professionals. And then there was another separate 2018 study uh, by current research and opinion. And in that study, the researchers looked at 73 menstrual cycle apps and none of them could accurately predict ovulation. And indeed like the best app had a 21% accuracy rating. Wow. So that is kind of very alarming to me, Um, you know, on the femtech side, whenever we think about the types of apps that are out there and the fact that consumers don't have a lot of, you know, ways to vet this. So if you're a consumer, right, and you're thinking about accuracy of your device, highly recommend trying to find what methodologies your app is using, making sure that those are grounded in scientific and medical accuracy and literature, um, because there's a lot of devices out there that are still using outdated science, um, and that's contributing to the inaccuracies. So that's kind of thing one. Thing two is we have data privacy, and whenever we think about how these apps are regulated from a data privacy perspective, it can oftentimes be (laughs) very surprising to consumers. So most consumers are aware, right, that we have the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA. HIPAA has a privacy rule that protects certain healthcare data that's known as protected health information. A lot of consumers automatically think because they're putting health information into a health app that HIPAA is going to protect their data. It won't. So HIPAA is really only going to apply if you have a covered entity that's using or disclosing that PHI. What do I mean by covered entity? I mean your healthcare provider, right? Um, a healthcare clearinghouse, you know those types of organizations, um, health plans, right? That type of thing. Most of these femtech apps do not qualify as a covered entity, and they're you know a lot of them don't have that that medical oversight as we were talking about either. So, because of that, you could input the exact same data into your FemTech app and give that same data to your healthcare provider. And it's protected when it's with the healthcare provider and no HIPAA protection when it's in the app. So, we have a pretty big gap there. Now, how do we fill that gap? Well, we don't have anything that's filling that gap fully yet. We have state laws that have come in to try and protect healthcare data. Um, so, California. Has It's very stringent privacy law. That's kind of the gold standard amongst the states right now. We've seen more and more state laws coming onto the market. And then we have the Federal Trade Commission. And the FTC is really making sure that there's no unfair or deceptive acts or practices for consumers. So it's not necessarily regulating privacy directly, but if a company has unfair or deceptive privacy practices, then they can get the company and investigate the company. So let's look at kind of what has happened um, on the Femtech side with a couple of these apps getting in trouble. So the first app um, for Femtech that really got in trouble was Flow, and that was in 2021. The FTC found that Flow had shared sensitive health data with third-party app analytics and marketing services, so think Facebook here, despite the fact that it promised it would not do so in its privacy policy. So here's one where, right, the company says it's not going to do this and it's promised to you as a consumer and then goes and does it. So because of that, the FTC took action against flow. This case was really unique because, right, it was, it was a unanimous decision, but we had two FTC commissioners dissent and, right, they didn't dissent with the opinion, but they said, hey, we have this health breach notification rule. And it would have required flow to notify consumers of this unauthorized disclosure of their information. We need to be using that, right? This, this has been a rule for over a decade, and we haven't used it. This is the perfect example of where we need to be using it. So because of that, what we've started to see now is the FTC actually using that health breach notification rule. Um, and it did so recently against GoodRx. And we've just started to see it in a case that just happened with Premom fertility. So this one just came out, um, but the FTC charged a free period tracking and ovulation app, Premom, with deceiving consumers by sharing their health data with third parties like Google and also two China-based firms. So, Premom was sharing users' reproductive information, right? Their precise geolocation data. And it was doing so through software development kits. And so, this meant that there was really an unauthorized disclosure of that individual's health data. And so, Premom was also charged with failing to notify consumers under that health breach notification rule. Um, so, that is, is very interesting. And then, when we think about state attorneys general, Um, A lot of states have their own unfair and deceptive practices acts as well, in addition to the federal one with the FTC. So GLOW, back in 2020, was actually investigated by California's attorney general, um, and they announced kind of this landmark settlement with GLOW. Um, And for those who aren't familiar, GLOW is a fertility tracking app, and it really investigated the app for some serious privacy failures, basic security failures, um, and said that it wasn't protecting women's sensitive health data. Um, and so then Glow was required to then comply with consumer state privacy laws um, and protection laws.
0: I've heard conversations about that, you know, with all of the advancement in you know, algorithms and AI and the need for further regulation, there are still laws and rules and regulations around privacy, around anti-fraud, around identity that can still be applied today in cases like this. Absolutely. So speaking of aggregating data and utilizing it, how do you feel about data aggregating in these apps from the perspective of a lot of times you want to you you aggregate this data so that you can learn from it and then you can train ai models you can suggest you can treat you can recommend you can predict behavior or treatment how do you feel about doing data aggregation for those purposes of actually giving the consumer proactive advice
1: Yeah, so I absolutely think that data aggregation has a place in healthcare if it's done properly. Um, so, for instance, right, as you're mentioning, you can aggregate hundreds of thousands of medical data points that can then allow medical experts to identify important health trends, right, come up with more effective and important treatment options or methods, and better train that artificial intelligence and machine learning technology. Um, so, I think if we have optimum utilization of data and data aggregation, then we will get better healthcare products um, and better healthcare identification of those trends. Now, the problem that concerns me right is when we misuse data aggregation or we use data aggregation for profit in a way that, you know, consumers never intended their data to be used, right? Like aggregating and selling downstream.
0: Yeah, certainly, you know, one revenue stream for data companies for apps is figuring out how to monetize that data that they collect whether selling it to advertisers or maybe to other healthcare companies that can use it to you know, aggregate and do any kind of analytics on it. And so obviously, you know, you talked about the ethical issues around monetizing female health health data. But is there any? Have you come across any cases where you it, it, ha, it has been done in a in a ethical way, monetizing that data?
1: Yeah, I think there are ways to do it ethically. Um, even even data aggregation being done ethically. So, for example, um, Clue uses and aggregates women's health data and provides it downstream to clinical researchers. And those clinical researchers are using that data to make important insights um, and, you know, identification of trends, et cetera, for women's health care in a way that hasn't ever happened before because we do have a huge gender data gap when it comes to women's health care. So that is one instance where I think this has gone really well. You know, I'm not sure if they're monetizing that data through the clinician researchers, right, or exactly the monetization piece for it. But that is one I will say where I've seen data aggregation and use downstream be highly effective, um, because they are really helping to close that gender data gap and understand how things like, you know, certain medications, right, or certain treatments impact women differently.
0: Do you find that there's too much data? Do uh, Do clinicians or product managers know what to do with all that data that's being collected?
1: They do not. Yeah, we have a huge problem of data overload right now. So, and this is kind of across all health technology, not just femtech. um, But a lot of clinicians don't know what to do with that data. Um, And I've worked with a lot of clinicians who have come to me and said, my client, you know, my, my patient has come to me, they want me to add this data into their medical record, they want me to prescribe XYZ based on this app. I have no idea what this app is. I don't know how this app is, you know, formatted, how it was created, how it's making these predictions. I don't know what its algorithm is doing. Is it based on sound medical science? And so a lot of times... These physicians will not use the data, um, unless it is something that they have either personally been involved in, or they understand, you know, there's clinical backing, there's research or literature on how this app works, because there's such a risk, right, going back to that inaccuracy concerns that we've talked about, you know, that this data could potentially be meaningless. Now. It doesn't mean, right, that as consumers, we should stop using those applications just because our clinicians won't necessarily incorporate it into the standard of care at this time. You know, we can still use it to kind of drive our own understanding of our bodies and also for us to have better conversations with our clinicians about what might be going on. But I think clinicians also, and especially in femtech, feel that there is this gap between the People who are building the health technology and the medical side of the health technology. Um, when I first came into femtech, I just kind of assumed, right, that these femtech apps were being created in conjunction with OBGYNs and reproductive healthcare specialists. And when I started to talk to these clinicians, they told me, no. Right? We're not being consulted. We want to be consulted. We want to help with this. You know, if you're in an academic institution, there may be red tape, etc. But we want to be involved. We're just not being consulted. We're not in this industry that is what we've devoted our entire life to. So from the clinician perspective, too, I think you know they want to use this data but really there's you know accuracy concerns and how was this device created that those types of concerns kind of prevent them from being able to just look at your app and use that data to make a meaningful clinical decision
0: you know a few episodes ago i interviewed Mohammed kamara who is founder and ceo of of an app called in of cares that is an app for women particularly women of color that uh, provides access to culturally sensitive clinicians he identified a gap that there was not quality care and accessible care for women of color and provide and created an app that provides that remotely in your experience in general in femtech how inclusive has it been and is there a proper representation for historically underrepresented communities and and i just want to maybe note that cited that femtech devices you know have a problem with accuracy is it possibly because of that there just isn't the accurate data in terms of representing all consumers?
1: Yeah, this is a fantastic question. So I would say, especially at the very beginning of the femtech industry in 2016, we were not getting accurate, inclusive products. And a lot of that had to do with how these devices were being created and the assumptions that the creators were making. So for instance, there was a popular period tracking app during that time, right? And it would use imagery that was, you know, pink and flowery for women's health care that was kind of, you know, made a lot of women cringe. It would, you know, if you were coming up on your ovulation period, it would tell men, you know, your, your partner to bring you nice flowers, right? Or to make sure that you were wearing nice underwear. And so there were a lot of these assumptions, About you know what people were using these apps for, Um, there was a lot of exclusion, especially of the LGBTQ community, and how these apps were designed. For instance, one app, whenever you had to input your sexual position, it would only use banana icons, and so there was no other way to change that. Right? (laughs) Um, There were a lot of things that were very insulting to consumers. So definitely in the beginning, not a lot of inclusivity. I will say that we still don't necessarily have the level of inclusivity and diversity of data that we absolutely need in these apps. Um, A lot of these apps are being trained on, you know, kind of a homogenous data set. Um, Usually white women, right, or, um, you know, there might be a little bit of, you know, diversity included in there, but it's usually not a lot. Um, These sample sets for it, we're just thinking, you know, mainstream femtech, right? Now, obviously, there are a lot of companies that do it right. But generally, you know, there's not necessarily a prioritization of diversity and inclusivity in these test data sets that the algorithm is trained on. And that could then lead to these inaccurate predictions for different types of ethnicity groups, right, or minority groups who didn't have representative samples training the algorithm. And I think with women's health, right, there's this Assumption that women's health care will be the same across all of the different, you know, races and ethnicities. And that's not sure true. That's I mean, there have, yeah, there have been studies that show that, you know, Indian women experience menopause at different ages than white women. So it's really necessary. And one of the things I absolutely push for is having a very broad and inclusive data set whenever you're creating these products. Not only will you train your algorithm better, but you're also going to get feedback on your design and make sure that your design isn't going to be offensive, right? Or othering to certain populations of the community. For instance, Fitbit, whenever it first came out with its menstrual cycle app, people were thrilled. But the problem was Fitbit limited the input for a women's menstrual cycle to just 10 days. Even though the majority of women are going to have menstrual cycles that fluctuate, that are longer than 10 days, right? So if they had used a more inclusive test data group, they would have seen those fluctuations. They would have seen the need for having a longer window of data entry and been able to fix that before the product went to market and caused a huge uproar. Now, the other thing that I want to say kind of on the data diversity issue is what happens after DOPS? This is where I get really concerned about what's going to happen to the data entries we get for Femtech, um, because certain racial and ethnic groups are more prominent in states that have abortion restrictions. And so because of that, they are going to be the groups that are going to be less likely to trust and use these Femtech apps, given where they're located. And because of that, it may mean that we get less diverse data going forward for these fintech apps to train their algorithms. So that's something that I'm really keeping an eye on.
0: Yeah, I think you make an excellent point, and I can just say, you know, as a gay man that has looked into these issues and has looked at apps like this, gay men's health and certainly lesbian health issues are unique, and there usually is not representation. It's bad enough even in just the medical community currently, as far as picking your primary care physician to even have acknowledgement and understanding of these issues. I can't imagine that the technological side in the apps is anywhere near even that. All right, it is time for hot topics. So the first thing I want to talk about, because everybody's talking about it, is Chad GPT. And more broadly, AI. So in an article that came out in Femtech Insider, it said that no doubt many businesses, including Femtech and Sextech, will integrate more AI into their internal processes. But what's differentiating company A from company B if the production of content becomes available to anyone? How will companies differentiate in oceans of bland generic content? This is where these elements come in, the brand voice, the personality, the energy that it puts uh, uh, towards the brand, and all human attributes. So this article touts some of the drawbacks of ChatGPT in general, that A, it's outdated sources for training, possible violations of explicit content warnings as as it regards to sexual health, etc. Do you think that ChatGPT or generative AI or AI in general has any role in the future of femtech?
1: I absolutely do think it has a role, and I don't think we're going to be able to avoid it, whether we want to or not, whether we think it's, you know, a good development or a bad development. We're already seeing generative AI and chat GPT being used in femtech products. So, for instance, there is a Texas-based women's health startup, and it just announced that it is going to be launching an AI-based chat tool that was inspired by chat GPT. Um, so it was formerly known as the Social Mama app, it's rebranding as the Emma app, um, and it wants users to access these medically vetted information articles that type of thing to support women's healthcare. Now this company had a non chat GPT platform beforehand, and then once chat GPT came out right they decided to kind of recreate it to incorporate this type of GPT technology. I also think a lot of femtech apps out there are heavily relying on AI and its ability to make these algorithmic predictions for women. I can absolutely imagine a scenario in which a lot of the apps that already are on the market or that are coming to the market are going to be expanding their educational resource section to kind of pull in all of these different articles, give women access to much broader information, and kind of have these chat functions that can provide these answers trained on the medical literature that's out there. Now, as you mentioned, right, some of the, the drawbacks is that we don't have necessarily a ton of data on women's health care, right? This may be outdated data. This may be, you know, things that have been disproven in the past years. Um, so making sure, right, that the algorithm stays up to date and trained, right, and that we have chat GPT that's going to provide meaningful answers. I also worry, right if you have a chat gpt function that's providing medical advice that is trained on these outdated data sources right what is your liability as a company so i think we're going to absolutely see this integrated in technology i don't think we can avoid it but i think we're going to have some issues
0: yeah i think you mentioned a, a lot of really good issues um i do i do find it fascinating if you take the chat gpt model that's sort of you know a large language model that is trained on the entire internet but um i think it was you know, the last time it was trained or the only time that it was trained was like a year ago or two years ago. So there's a gap in its knowledge, right? It doesn't have all the latest information to learn from from the last year. So you have to take it with a grain of salt that when you're asking a question, you're not getting up-to-date information uh, synthesized into the answer. But if you take that model and create uh, large language models or LLMs for specific topics or specific fields like femtech, like, you know, marketing, um, then you have the ability first of all to keep training it over and over again and it takes less time to do that um, yeah but you're getting much more specialized resource which I think is very very promising
1: yeah I think that's very promising too I also want to make sure right that chat you know whatever chat GPT is going to be trained on for femtech doesn't include a lot of misinformation that is out there on the internet you know that's I really always important. think. That's going to be hard to sift through whenever you train these algorithms, especially when we think about women's health or abortion. The amount of misinformation out there is, is sky high.
0: This last question, I'm going to, I don't like it, but I'm going to ask it and see if we can figure it out because okay. I, I, I think it's ridiculous. So there's also been studies that indicate that femtech itself as a sector may be struggling to find equality. There was a study that noted that women's health only receives about 4% of healthcare research and development funding worldwide. But there's also been noting that femtech as a term might be, in fact, othering the female healthcare uh, element. And so it's kind of separating it from broader health and wellness tech and positioning it as niche. On one hand, that makes sense. But on the other hand, there's a reason why... Femtech as a niche was created because it wasn't getting enough representation it's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing that yeah. and actually it really isn't a chicken and egg thing it's very obvious what the, co- the cause and effect is and I find that people who ask this kind of question are doing it from a place of some privilege where they don't they maybe have a blind spot as to why the niche had to get created. Um, what do you think of what I just said? <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I've, I've got a couple of thoughts, actually. Um, So I'll tackle the naming convention first. I've heard the exact same things that you have, right? Um, We're separating out femtech, right? We're being exclusive by calling it fem, you know, those types of things. I completely understand those concerns. You know, I'm not saying that the term femtech is going to be around forever, right? We may evolve, we may change it may get adopted back into the mainstream health tech terminology. Femtech though I think as a term has really been beneficial because it's given us a uniform terminology um, in order to have this dialogue and to articulate women's health concerns, and so for that reason, I think it has had a, an extremely positive impact. Even though there's, you know, as with so many terms out there, you know, the potential for othering or the potential for exclusion, I don't think it's at all meant to be an exclusionary category. Um, I think it's mainly giving us a voice and, and an opportunity to have a dialogue using consistent terminology. And as you mentioned, right. VEMTIC came about because women for so long were excluded from mainstream medicine. Um, It wasn't until 1993 that women were even allowed to participate in clinical trials. Um, There was a 1977 FDA policy that prevented women of childbearing age from participating in these trials. And because of that, we have a gender data gap. Um, And as we're starting to investigate, right, we're seeing that more and more drugs have more serious side effects for women, um, or that medical knowledge has just been applied to women on kind of a one-size-fits-all basis. The other thing I would say too, I think Femtech is struggling a little bit to, to kind of gain a foothold in terms of um, you know, percentage of R&D dollars, right, or percentage of all digital health funding, because we still face a lot of an uphill battle with how we pitch these um, products, right, to investors. The venture capital investment landscape is still very heavily male-dominated. So we don't necessarily have a lot of diversity um, when we think about, you know, the executive positions at Silicon Valley companies or the executive positions and partnerships um, at the venture capital firms. Really, only um, 11% of executive positions at Silicon Valley companies are held by women. And if we think about a venture capital firm, um, if they have female investors, that firm is going to be three times more likely to invest in companies that have female CEOs. But that said, right, if we look back at 2019, less than 3% of all venture capital investment went to women-led companies, and only a fifth of all U.S. venture capital funding went to startups that had at least one female founder. And when you think about the fact that FemTech is very heavily um, on the female founder side, we can see a little bit um, of of why women may not be getting those investment dollars and why FemTech could be struggling.
0: Yeah, I think uh, this question and this opinion really pisses me off because I think it, in general, when you look at it's the same reason there are HBCUs, it's the same reason that there are gay bars, it's the same reason that there's Femtech. It's these underrepresented communities that did not get any visibility, that had to fend for themselves and, and represent themselves and create safe spaces where they can flourish.
1: Exactly. And a lot of people still think it's niche, right? They, they call FemTech a niche industry.
0: And we're it's 50%, 50% of the population.
1: 50%. And we make 80% of healthcare decisions. Uh, so we're, we're not niche and I can't get people to move past it.
0: Bethany, if anybody is interested in uh, learning more about what you're doing or getting in contact with you, where can they find you?
1: Absolutely. So they can go to my website, BethanyCorbin.com, or my business website, FemInnovation.com. I'm also very active on LinkedIn. Uh, so you can find me at LinkedIn.com slash IN slash Corbin.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been amazing. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to at gmail.com. That's Who's Your Data Now, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data?